0: Remember what you said you return that I might live In my father's house
1: The woman has an egg that is fertilized by the male seed. But God, speaking of the woman's seed, is indicating and hinting of a virgin birth, which later on is amplified when god speaks of it more clearly in the prophet isaiah in isaiah 7 14 to be exact and he says behold i shall give you a sign a virgin shall conceive and bring forth its son and you shall call his name emmanuel which means
0: god with us there have been theological debates for a long time over whether god knew that man would fall into sin did he know even before the fall that he would need to send his son to die on the cross and secure our salvation? Those are some big questions. No human being can claim to understand or fathom the mind of God and his position as an eternal being. But as Pastor Michael point out in today's message, we find a prophetic hint to Christ in these moments following Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 3 as he begins his message, The Grace of God.
1: Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15. And I, now this is God speaking to the serpent, actually to the devil, who just in a moment will be turned into a serpent and, and slither on out of the garden on his belly as a part of the curse that God had pronounced upon him. And I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the woman. The woman would be uh, Eve, and between your seed. And her seed, now hold on to that. Her seed, wait a second. And uh, something's wrong there. Hold on to that. I'll come back to that in just a moment. The woman doesn't have a seed. She has an ache. So just hang on to that thought for just a moment. And he, that is Jesus, shall bruise your head, shall bruise the head of the, of the devil, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel, which is a reference, of course, to the crucifixion of Christ. There at Calvary. Now, this verse of Scripture is most important, is most significant for two specific reasons. You might want to write these down. The first of which is, it is the first, and we've already talked about this. I've I've already touched upon this first reason. It is the first messianic prophecy promise of the coming Savior referring specifically to Christ's ultimate defeat of Satan there upon the cross. And it's found in the phrase, and he shall bruise your head. But then there's another reference, and, and maybe something that you've never considered or even thought of before. Let's go back to verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." So herein is also the first promise of God for salvation that shall come. And the hint of this, the hint is that the salvation will come through a virgin-born child. Think about it. For God is speaking of the woman's seed, which she does not have. The woman has an egg that is fertilized by the male seed. But God speaking of the woman's seed is indicating and hinting of a virgin birth, which later on is amplified when God speaks of it more clearly in the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, 14, to be exact. And he says, Behold, I shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth its son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, and he shall be great, and uh, and his kingdom shall last forever. So it speaks about his kingdom and his throne. And so God's promise back at the beginning of the sorrows, the result of the fall of Adam and Eve, and the calamity from sin is that the day will come when the woman's seed, Christ, will bruise the serpent's head. The head always being spiritually a symbol of authority and power. The seed of the woman to destroy Satan's power. The authority of Satan. And so Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan over our lives and the authority of Satan over our lives. Okay? And then again, however, thou shalt bruise his heel, which is no doubt a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. So anyway, I wanted to uh, mention that. So anyway, that's the, the first important reason why this is a significant verse of Scripture. The second is it also serves as an announcement concerning the grace of God. Now, let's talk about grace for a moment. Let me give you a a brief working definition of what grace is. Grace has been described as the unmerited favor of God or provision for the undeserving. That is God's favor to those who deserve precisely the opposite. But listen, if you think about this as well, everything that God does is of grace because none of us deserve anything. For example, consider Adam. He didn't deserve anything before the fall, even before the fall, even before he chose to disobey God and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, Adam didn't deserve anything from the hand of, uh, But he was given life. Think about that. He breathed life into the first man. He provided the garden, and all that was created within the physical universe. And then gave him dominion over it. He uh, instructed him to uh, have dominion, and it was all for their enjoyment, the garden. And then he, he saw that it wasn't good that man should be alone. So he made him a helpmate, the first woman, his wife. Eve. And then after that, he gave Adam meaningful work to do. Remember, as the animals passed by, he named each and every one of them. All of grace, everything that we read about up until this point was all about and in and of the grace of God. Now, this view of, think about this though, this view of grace is not commonly seen in the scriptures. Usually, when we talk about grace, both in the old and the New Testament, it's seen only against the black backdrop of sin. Like, for example, uh, after the fall, let's use Adam as an example of this in Adam's case, it is revealed in God's gentle dealing with him following the fall, you know, entering into the garden to seek him out, right? to bring him to that place of confession uh, of his sin. So that happened following the fall. He could have came in there just simply to wipe him out, but he didn't do that. And then he goes on further to deliver the promise of a deliverer to come. That is in the person of Jesus Christ. So talk about grace. But then let's think about some additional examples of grace. As we go through the Bible, the grace of God is revealed in God's continuing care of Israel in spite of their constant wandering from them. Unfortunately, that was their reoccurring history, right? You know, God would bless them and go before them and defeat their enemies. And for a season, they would obey God and they would worship God. And, and, but then after a while, they had forgotten what God had done. And they would begin to disobey the Lord and they would go after these other gods, the strange gods of the people around them and and then God would raise up their enemies to defeat them or use them as in the form of a judgment. And in their misery, they would cry out to God. And then God would respond in grace. And he would defeat their enemies. and would bring them out of the hands of their oppressors. And, and then for a season, once again, they would walk with the Lord. And they would obey the Lord. And they would worship the Lord. And then after a time of prosperity, they would forget him. I mean, it was the reoccurring history of the nation of Israel. And God never blew them off, even up until the present time. God still has a work that he has to complete in the hearts and lives of his people, Israel. There's coming a day when he's going to remove the scales from before their eyes, the Bible tells us. And they'll recognize Christ as their Savior. No longer will they refer to their God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they'll refer to Jesus as their God, as their Savior. So he never blew them off. He never wrote them off. Folks, that's what grace is. That's what grace looks like. And as we move into the New Testament, the most wonderful display of God's grace, the demonstration of grace, is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. Dying in our place, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. God, because of our sin, providing the basis by which all who call upon the name of Jesus could be saved. God's marvelous grace, providing for us in every possible way, physically, spiritually. Think about it. In every aspect of our lives, everything that we possess, everything that is within our hands has been given to us from above, has been given to us of God, that abundant overflowing nature of grace, which may be stated as how believers gain more through the work of Jesus Christ than we lost in the first man, our father, if you will, or well, going back, I guess it would be our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam. You know, a poet wrote, and I quote, about the subject of grace, what God has done for us. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's Mount poured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. You know, let me give you a cross-reference for this. What a wonderful uh, poem. And the unknown poet, though, by the way. I don't, I, it was just something I found in one of my old commentaries. In the book of Romans in chapter 5, uh, Paul puts it this way in verses 20 through 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, how? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, let's go back to our text. Since verse 15 is the first verse in the Bible to speak about the grace of God, the great total triumph of Jesus to the lesser and ineffective blow to Satan, to both Christ and Adam, that is, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I want to amplify this truth from the scriptures to establish why we have gained more in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, than we lost in the first Adam. Our first point is Christ in us. And what a wonderful, marvelous display of God's grace. Think about that. Christ in us. Now, we hear that phrase often used in Christian circles. And I often or frequently use it myself when I teach. But what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that imply? How does that affect the believer? Well, first of all, let me establish that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, we read, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again, we're, Paul is emphasizing there Christ in us. So the idea here is for, for those who believe in Christ, they've been made Alive in Him, that is alive to the things of God, alive to the things of the Spirit, spiritual things. You see, the very life of Christ Himself resides within us. Let me give you some more cross references. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul puts it this way I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in just a moment, I'm going to talk about some of the implications of these statements. So hang in there. Let me give you another cross-reference. The book of Romans in chapter 8, and verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so what's the implications of these verses of Scripture that we've just read? Well, there are two important effects. The first of which is this divine life within us is eternal and will never die. Now think about that. It's something, it's unlimited. It's an unlimited resource. It'll never die. It's something that God has placed within us. So think about this This life that we're talking about, Christ in us, the effect of this, this divine life, this life that has been placed in us upon our conversion experience when we're born again, is eternal, and it will not die. And then secondly, here's the, the second important effect that it has upon us, this divine life will urge us unto righteousness. Let me say that again. This divine life that is placed within us will urge us all Onto righteousness. Have you ever wondered why? What makes you get up in the morning and open up your Bible? So at least I hope you open your Bibles up every morning. Or prayer. There are just some people who have the gift of prayer. And it's amazing. Whenever there's a prayer meeting, man, get yourself over there. You'll be blessed, you. There's nothing more important or worthwhile, time worthwhile and well spent, then coming together with your brothers and sisters and corporately praying. Man, get yourself over to those prayer, prayer breakfasts, and there's some great food that goes along with it, too. Man, but have you ever wondered, what, you know, what urges us on to righteousness? It's something that is within us. You know, Paul put it this way in the book of Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Shall I say that again? Philippians chapter two and verse thirteen: For it is God who works in you, right, to will and to do of His good pleasure. So that's the answer to that question: What urges you on to righteousness? You know, when when you blow it, when you fail to measure up to God's standard, there's these feelings, there's these emotions, there's these convictions. You want to do better. You want to dig in deeper. You want to become the man, the woman that God wants you to become? How's that even, why why is that? Because Christ is in you, urging you along, prompting you by the Spirit. Have you ever wondered about that? Man, what what a blessing that is, right? His life within. Think about the effect that it has. It'll help you to repel sin. To stand up against any temptation that presents itself to you. It'll help you to cleave to that which is good. It'll help you to cleave to Jesus Christ. Verses and in contrast, think about that. The unbeliever who gravitates towards sin, who has an appetite for sin, right? Who uh, really delights in practicing sin. You see the contrast between the two? How do you explain that? The only explanation is you got to put Christ behind it. Christ in us the hope of glory. But there's something even more, something even more. Also, this life is proof of the fact that we are born of God, that we are a child of God. Now, we've already covered this in our series on Thursday evenings. Like, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, and verses 4 through 6, he who says, I know him, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I've gone through the conversion experience, I've taken the name of Christ, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You know, it's possible for us to even deceive ourselves. I guess that's what John is suggesting here. He goes on, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. By this we know that we are in him. And then in verse 6, he who says he abides in him that is in Christ ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now jump ahead to chapter 3 and verse 9. And there we read, whoever has been born of God does not sin or does not continue in sin. And I'm going to pick up on that in just a moment, so don't be confused about that. It doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again. But we don't continue in sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. God won't leave you alone. He won't allow you to continue in sin. He'll convict you of your sin. He'll convict you of your sin. He'll keep going after you. There won't be any peace. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you blow it, the hound of heaven, right? He keeps coming at us, making all of the wrongs right. Praise God for that. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So let me say it once again. It doesn't mean we never sin, but it does mean that there will be this yearning on our part, for righteousness. And it will lead the believer day by day by day in that direction. Listen, this is a huge improvement over the case of Adam, whose life, that is the natural life, which apparently didn't lead in that direction. He fell into sin. Adam chose rebellion and death. So in Christ, remember now what this all... This message is all about it. It's all about the grace of God. I'm serving up all of these different examples to just try to impress upon you what that looks like, what it means, how it affects the believer. So in Christ granting us divine life, Christ in us, truly the grace of God abounded. Now, that brings us to our second point, our second example of this grace, and that is justified from all sin justified from all sin. Now, let me give you a cross-reference for this. Romans chapter 5 and verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Now, how many times have you read this and you, you just really, you just couldn't make heads or tails of it? Well, let me hopefully explain what Paul is referring to here. Paul here is comparing the entrance of death into the world by Adam, and then, in contrast, the entry of eternal life into the world through the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. It is making the comparison of sin and grace, condemnation and justification. So, how is it that the grace of God in Christ to justification is greater than the working of sin in Adam to condemnation? Well, think about it. The condemnation was based on just one sin. It was just one sin, right? God pronounced judgment upon Adam and Eve. It was only one sin. They just There was only one restriction back then, one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good. Just one, right? So the condemnation that they received was based upon just one sin. In my
0: father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long been listening to Pastor Mike Finizio here on In My Father's House. He is working his way through the book of Genesis. If you were blessed by today's message and want to pass along the blessing, you can find a link to give to the ministry on our website, harvestnyc.org. We have so much available to you there, including many audio messages and links to streamed messages. We stream every Sunday and Thursday service. Once again, that's HarvestNYC.org. Another way to pass along the blessing is to share the messages with someone else. Maybe God put someone on your heart today as you listened. You can send them the links as well. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan, New York City. We're easy to find with access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. Come by and see us. But if you're from another part of the country or world, we'd love to know. Please send us a quick note at NYC at verizon.net. That's harvestnyc at verizon.net. It's a great encouragement to Pastor Mike and the team at In My Father's House to hear where these messages are being listened to. There is nothing more beautiful than the global body of Christ. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to our podcast for daily doses of the Word. Just go to Spotify and search for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio. And then just click follow. Well, we have filled our time for today. Come back and see us again, because there's no better place to be than In My Father's House with you.